Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Tarek Jaffer, Associate Professor of Religion at Amherst College and winner of the AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, Razi, Master of Quranic Interpretation and Theological Reasoning, published with Oxford University Press. Congratulations, and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on the program, Christian. I, uh, I appreciate it. Now, this is a really a wonderful book. I hope AAR members will pick it up after our conversations if they haven't already. But this figure, he's, he's an important figure, and perhaps a lot of listeners will not know much about him. So can you introduce us to Fakhr al-Din al-Razi, who he was, some of the larger context that we might want to think about him in? Sure, sure. Fakhruddin al-Razi was born in Iran and flourished in Central Asia and as a, as a graduate student abbreviated his name to simply FDR. Uh, <laughs> Fakhruddin al-Razi was a, uh, a leading figure in what we now call the post-classical intellectual period of Islamic civilization and that runs roughly from about 1200 to 1900. He was the author of many theological and philosophical works many of which were commented upon in Muslim institutions of learning, and some of his works are still studied today at the Azhar in Egypt. He's the author of a monumental commentary on the Qur'an, 32 big, big volumes. I became fascinated by these volumes when I was a graduate student. I was just groping around looking for a dissertation topic when I was in the stacks of Sterling Library at Yale. So Razi was a major contributor to Islamic civilization, and one of the ways we can think about his contribution to the tradition is as follows. He should be, and this is actually one of the points I argued in my book, he should be credited with appropriating the entire heritage of Aristotelian Avicennian philosophy and exploiting that heritage to interpret the Qur'an. So this had not been done, this, this process of appropriation and naturalization within the genre of Quranic commentary, that had not taken place before the time of Razi. And one of the things I was trying to do in the book was to chart this complex process through which Razi borrowed, or if you like, appropriated all of this philosophical material and used it to interpret the Quran. And as I got into the subject matter, it became clear to me that the, that the topic was extraordinarily complex, partially because I, I figured out quite early in the game that Razi had helped himself to methods, to ideas, and to principles, not just from the ancient Greek and Islamic philosophical tradition, but also from other currents of thought in Islamic civilization. So he had helped himself to ideas and methods from the Mu'tazila, he had helped himself to ideas and methods from Sufism, just to name two currents of thought. There are a number of things that I was trying to figure out when I wrote the book. One of the things I wanted to figure out was how Razi went about synthesizing all of this material into a single work, into his Quranic commentary. And so I, I began with a number of questions. For example, what rationalistic principles did he bring to the task of exegesis? What kinds of theological assumptions does he make when he interprets the Qur'an? What interpretive methods does he employ when he goes about exegeting the Qur'an? And so I felt that it was my task to sort out this mess and to try to find answers to all of these questions. I also figured out at a certain point in time 
that there were other figures within the Islamic tradition who had a lot to say about Razi. For example, there's the traditionalist Ibn Taymiyyah. And so at one point I thought that, well, if I really wanted to understand Razi, I had to see what Ibn Taymiyyah had to say about him. Those were some of the initial questions that I began with when I wrote the work. Now, these competing intellectual positions, maybe you could outline a little bit about what some of the assumptions behind them are. The Avicennan perspective, you talked about Mutazilites, Sufi, you also talk about Asherites in the book. How does Razi navigate these competing traditions in terms of his own scriptural hermeneutic? First of all, I really like the question because it's it's a really difficult one. So there were, as you say, competing positions on all of the different topics that Muslim philosophers and theologians take up within medieval Islam. And part of, as I said, what I was trying to do was sort out how Razi takes from these different currents of thought and different intellectual figures, people like Avicenna, Al-Ghazali, etc., and how he goes about synthesizing all of these ideas from these currents of thought. And really the problem I encountered towards the beginning of the project was that it's extraordinarily difficult, really impossible, to pin down Razi on a particular topic. So, for example, you might look at his particular philosophical text and see what he has to say about a subject, and then you'll turn to a theological text and you'll find that he flat out contradicts himself. Or you might turn to his commentary on the Qur'an and find that he says something rather different there about that topic that you're interested in. So it's really impossible, I found, to pin Razi down and try to figure out where he stands on a particular issue. I was eventually led to the conclusion that we should not necessarily assume that there is a unity to Razi's thought. And that might have been a mistake that I made at the beginning of the project. But as I got deeper into Razi's studies, I, I figured out that it was not necessarily concerned with presenting a coherent theological or philosophical system, but it did take me some time to figure that out. And so navigating the way Razi takes from different in intellectual currents basically led me uh, to that conclusion. At times we'll side with the Mu'tazila, at times he will side with the Sufis, and at times he will side with some of his predecessors from within the Esharite tradition. And there's really no way to, to pin him down on any of these topics that I set out to study. The focus of the book is on his commentary, but of course you bring in a lot of his other works. But what does his commentary look like, and how does it fit into the expectations of the tafsir genre more broadly during his life, and how might we see his work as unique compared to his predecessors and contemporaries? One of the things I, I realized while working within the genre of, of tafsir, working within the genre of Quranic commentary, was that I realized that his commentary reflected a lot of ideas and principles and methods that one finds in his philosophical texts and in his theological texts. So I found that what I really needed to do at the beginning of the project was to figure out what I call his overall intellectual program. And so one of the ways I went about that was by translating and studying the introductions to many of his works. And I, I don't think much of this had been done before. I don't think that people had really seen the extent to which Razi's hermeneutical project in his, in his Quranic commentary uh, was influenced by 
his philosophical and theological work. So I was one of the things that I was trying to do was to go back and forth between these different genres that Razi was working in and compare the methods and ideas that you find in these different genres. To your second question, what makes the, the commentary unique? There are several ways of answering the question, but one way to think about Razi is that he was really interested in giving philosophical meaning to the Qur'an. And one of the ways that he thought that he could do that was by drawing on this heritage of ancient and medieval Islamic philosophy. So that was one of the ways that, that one can, can think about the uniqueness of his project in a Qur'anic commentary. There are other ways of thinking about it, too, because, of course, there was this famous article written by Sabra, and Sabra had talked about the process through which Muslim scientists and philosophers had appropriated and then naturalized philosophy and science into medieval Islam. So what I tried to do was fit what Razi was doing into that meta-narrative, if you like. But there are other ways that I could have gone about the project. You know, this meta-narrative of appropriation and naturalization was just one of them. And if I were to write the book again, which I may do, uh, I would probably go about it quite a bit differently. But at, at the time, that was the narrative that seemed to make sense to me. That was the narrative that helped me explain to people what Razi was up to in this Quranic commentary. At root of many of your case studies, so to speak, you're really getting at the philosophical foundations of Razi's thought in relation to things like the role of rationality and reason, the role of scripture and tradition. Perhaps you can walk us through the example of the throne verse. How does Razi interpret this and what intellectual currents shape his thinking about verse 2, 255? It's been uh, some time since I thought about the throne verse, but obviously when one studies Razi, one is confronted with this sea of, of material and one has to choose, right, certain focal points or, or certain verses in order to get at what Razi is trying to do in his commentary. One of the verses that I looked at rather quickly was the throne verse. And what I simply wanted to do there was show was something that I thought was really fascinating about Razi's commentary uh, on the Qur'an, which was that many points in, in his commentary, he's able to show his reader just how the Qur'an can present philosophical viewpoints in a perfectly logical and systematic manner. And that's what I tried to do in the throne verse. So basically what I did was, was look at Razi's commentary there and show how Razi illustrates that the manner in which the Qur'an presents a certain conception of God is sitting on the throne conforms perfectly to the Avicennian conception of what is called the the necessary existent in philosophical language. So uh, it was it was just a, a simple example that I used to try to show how reason and revelation for Razi they lend authority to one another and the way they corroborate the conclusions of one another. So that was just a sample from Razi's commentary that I thought would help readers understand the extent to which Razi was committed to a wholly rationalistic understanding of the Qur'an and to understand how Razi was also committed to the idea that the Qur'an presents philosophical ideas uh, logically and consistently in a methodical manner. And again, I'm not sure that any commentator before the time of Razi had done this. 
Now you do a, a further exploration of the famous light verse, and this not only shows this tension between reason and revelation, but also illuminates some of the, the various intellectual currents that were surrounding him and how he uh, appropriated many of these intellectual right. traditions. Can you give us a little idea about what he's trying to do with the light verse or what we can learn sure. about his interpretive strategies? One of the things I felt it was necessary to grapple with was what were the main voices in Razi's Quran commentary. So just as for, you know, for someone like Tabari, the main voices might be Muslim traditions, and perhaps for Zamakhshari, it, it might be grammar. I wanted to figure out uh, what the main voices were in Razi's commentary. And there were two figures who were particularly prominent and those were Avicenna and Al-Ghazali. And I thought that by examining Razi's lengthy commentary on the light verse, he actually comments upon it on a number of occasions, that I could figure out uh, what his disposition was towards these two figures. What I ended up doing in that chapter was sorting out the particular concepts that Fakhruddin al-Razi had appropriated or borrowed from Avicenna or al-Ghazali and then introduced into his commentary. One of the concepts that I focused on there was this Avicennian concept of hadz, which is usually translated as intuition. It's an old concept that goes all the way back to Aristotle's posterior analytics, and it's, it's a way that Muslim philosophers have tried to explain prophecy, particularly the prophetic soul and how it differs from the ordinary soul. So in that chapter, I simply tried to trace the process through which this old Aristotelian concept had gone from Aristotle to Avicenna, through Al-Ghazali, and then into the genre of scriptural commentary in which Razi used that concept to explain the prophetic soul. So that's really what I was trying to do there. And had I had more time, I could have been much more comprehensive, but perhaps I'll do that in another project. Many of these topics that I treated in that book, I have a lot more to say about them, and I may return to this project again. You mentioned earlier, and there's a long section in the book about the critique of Razi. Not everyone received him in a generous way, right. and Ibn Taymiyyah in particular has some refutations about his perspective. Can, can you walk us through what his critique was? So again, it's been some time since I thought about Ibn Taymiyyah, but as I said earlier, at, at one point I, I realized that Ibn Taymiyyah, the famous traditionalist, had a lot to say about Razi's method of Quranic commentary. And I felt that I needed to understand what Ibn Taymiyyah's take on Razi was. So I spent quite a bit of time working with a big work that Ibn Taymiyyah wrote, translated as averting the conflict between reason and revelation. What I found is that Ibn Taymiyyah, who did make a really serious attempt to, to undermine Razi's whole intellectual program, he was really, really superb at explaining Razi's rationalistic principles. So I actually ended up getting a lot out of that work that Ibn Taymiyyah wrote, and I used that work to try to understand Razi's whole methodological project in his Quranic commentary. I now have some reservations about Ibn Taymiyyah's take on Razi. So as I said, I, I realized that he was really, really talented at explaining and at analyzing and breaking down Razi's arguments. But I also realized that he didn't have much of an appreciation for Razi's Sunni piety, 
And so one of the things that I would like to write about at some point in the future is Razi's Sunni piety, because Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, despite the fact that he was so he was so talented at analyzing Razi's thought, I didn't get the impression that he understood the extent to which Razi's whole intellectual program, particularly his his methodology within the sphere of Quranic commentary was inflected by and informed by Razi's Sunni piety. And so that's something that I would eventually like to return to. But the chapter, I think, that particular section, what I tried to do there was just show how the genre of Quranic commentary could have gone one direction. It could have gone in the direction of traditionalism. And Islamic theology also could have gone in the direction of traditionalism, but it did not. And that's what I was trying to do in that chapter. I was trying to show that these two different directions of Muslim thinking on a particular issue, the traditionalist way of thinking and the rationalistic way of thinking. Now, Tarek, this is a wonderful book, and there's there's really a lot to it. The reader really needs to approach the book itself. But I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts about how you might imagine others in religious studies benefiting from your work, either in the types of conclusions you've come with or the methodologies and approaches you use in structuring your your own book and doing your research. What do you think listeners might benefit from your work? I really like the question and I'll tell you why. When we were graduate students, many of us worked within single fields. You know, there were some interested in law, there were others interested in philosophy and others interested in theology. But I didn't find that there were many who saw the extent to which these disciplines or these fields had penetrated one another. And so what I tried to do in this book was really show the extent to which these disciplines, especially philosophy, theology, and and Muslim exegesis, were interacting with one another, specifically within Razi's works. And I'm hoping that when people work further in Razi's studies, that much of the work that will be done will begin with this supposition that what we really need to do is see the extent to which these people like Razi who are working in all of these different genres and wore many hats, we really need to take account of that and uh, try to understand the extent to which these disciplines were interacting with each other and these people who were working within these different disciplines uh, also interacted with one another. So that that's one thing I hope that people reading the book will, will get out of that. Well, it's really a wonderful book, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. I appreciate being on the show. Thanks very much, Christian. Thank you.